Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Latin American Studies. Today we're speaking with Dr. Monica de la Torre about her new book, Feminista Frequencies, Community Building Through Radio in the Yakima Valley, just out with the University of Washington Press here in 2022. Monica de la Torre is an assistant professor in the School of Transborder Studies at Arizona State University. She's a former community radio producer and member of the Los Angeles-based radio collective Soul Rebel Radio, Um, and her interdisciplinary research and teaching practices bridge Chicana feminist theory, Latinx feminist media studies, radio and sound studies, and women's and gender studies. As a critical scholar and practitioner of digital media and radio, De La Torre analyzes both media content and production practices to push the analytic edge of scholarship foregrounding modalities of difference such as gender, race, class, and citizenship. Dr. De La Torre, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I wonder if we could begin by you telling us a little about the origins of this book, Feminista Frequencies, Community Building Through Radio in the Yakima Valley. Um, What led you to researching the history of Chicana, Chicano community radio in this important region of uh, the Yakima Valley in Washington State? Well, it was, you know, one of those journeys that um, it uh, started in grad school where um, I went up to the University of Washington um, to start a PhD in feminist studies. Um, And I was really interested in cultural production. Um, I had at the time had spent some years volunteering with a group called Solarable Radio, which was a um, youth-oriented radio collective that produced a monthly radio program for KPFK in Los Angeles. KPFK is a radio station for the Pacifica Network, which is, um, you know, sort of a known as a leftist radical uh, roots uh, radio station um, that was listener supported. And so it was my first encounter with uh, both community-based collective media making that uh, we were a group of young people that really didn't have much experience in radio, but were given this opportunity and taught each other how to make radio, how to do interviews, how to produce, how to record, all of that. And so when I went up to graduate school, I actually hadn't really considered radio as my main focus. But um, my advisor, she noticed that I had that background and mentioned this radio station, uh, Radio Cadena, KDNA, in the Yakima Valley, which is in um, central eastern part of Washington. Uh, I was in Seattle at the time, um, but I 
was shocked that uh, I had never heard of this radio station and had never heard of the history of Chicanas and Chicanos in radio. Uh, I came from a master's program in Chicana Chicano studies. So uh, I was really, you know, excited and, and, and really looking forward to learning more about culture, but really hadn't considered my own history, my own background um, in you know, this, this format of radio, especially community radio production. So as soon as I heard about the station and learned that one of the founders, one of the only women founders of the radio station uh, was nearby, um, I decided that this was a great opportunity to learn more about this station. Um, and it just really led me to this really rich history of not just KDNA being um, this, a, a Chicano, Chicana station, but many others across the country. Thanks for that, Monica. And um, getting uh, more into the content of the book a little bit here, what are some of the, um, looking at the overall picture, what are some of the main points you, you see the book making and kind of the the biggest contributions maybe? I, I mean, I think you sort of uh, hinted at uh, a piece of the answer in saying, you know, even you yourself uh, were not aware of of this community community radio history in Washington. Right. Um, um, I think that one of the biggest contributions, and um, I think the goal, the biggest goal of the book, is to really untangle how uh, the migration of Mexican American, Chicana, Chicano farm workers to the area of the Pacific Northwest. So uh, Washington being one of those places, but we had Mexican and Mexican American communities migrating. Um, you know, really. Um, picked up after, you know, World War II, where you have um, the end of a migrant uh, guest worker program called the, the Bracero program that ended. And so there was a need for farm workers, farm labor. And so a lot of, of the agribusinesses recruited heavily from states like Texas and Arizona, California, um, you know, looking for um, what was very convenient, often families to migrate and to do the farm labor for, you know, the period of time needed and then uh, expecting families to return to, you know, either Mexico or um, you know, South. And so a lot of families started moving up in the 50s and 60s um, to the Yakima Valley, um, working hops and cherries and um, canning was a big um, employer also at the time. Um, and then you have, you know, the civil rights movement, you have student activism, women's activism, the Chicano movement in the region that was heavily focused on farm worker rights. And, um, you know, you have things like the UFW, the farm worker movement also springing up in Washington. Um, and then you have public media, public radio really, um, being an important component of the changes, the civil rights changes of the 60s and 70s, demanding that um, the airwaves be uh, accessible to a large group of people, that uh, radio waves are meant to educate and build community and entertain. And so uh, community radio, with the passing of the Public Broadcasting Act in 1967, really gave a lot of, of organizers um, in, in the, my book, I really focus on Chicano organizers um, and the women that helped to create the station. Uh, because again, you see how uh, th these group of organizers that were already um, 
working for civil rights, for um, farm worker rights, saw that radio was the perfect opportunity to reach farm workers. They attempted to do uh, newspapers, but they just found that, you know, farm workers didn't, were either illiterate or, you know, didn't have time to read uh, after long days on in the field. Um, television was a challenge because of its, you know, high cost and production uh, cost. But radio, uh, it's already a, a cultural practice that Mexican Americans and Mexicans in particular, you know, are already accustomed to listening to the radio and bringing, you know, portable transmis- uh, transistor radios to the field with them. It's a technology that's portable that they're able to tune in while they're working. Um, and so it was sort of the convergence of all of these movements that I um, really saw just blossom during the 70s and 80s in the Yakima Valley, where um, you have this group of people uh, taking advantage of the opening of the airwaves, applying for a radio license, and then receiving you know that license and then having to figure out how do we get a station off the ground. So uh, the book really tracks how uh, the founders of the station and the community um, were able to create the infrastructure with a um, goal of including, you know, not just men in the production, but also women and children uh, through various types of programs and um, programming. Like they had a women's program, they had a children's program, cooking segments, um, you know, they had a online or an on-air uh, sort of like Craigslist where they would advertise different things for sale. And so it really became a hub for this particular community. It was a place for vital information they couldn't receive elsewhere. And um, it was also, you note this in your book as part of, and uh, please correct me if I mischaracterize anything that you're <clears throat> saying in the book, but uh, part of the Chicana radio praxis that you lay out, um, in terms of the programming at KDNA, was uh, creating this uh, environment of support, care, sustenance, I think you say, um, that certainly wouldn't have been found at commercial stations and other you know, uh, capitalist-driven uh, um, media formats, right? Right, exactly. So at the time, um, you know, there was a interest, and especially at the government level, uh, to understand how public media was being, uh, you know, both received by audiences, but also uh, there was a study on the employment of, of diverse communities in public broadcasting. And that study um, found that there wasn't a lot of, you know, diversity, you know, there wasn't a lot of women in broad, especially public broadcasting, uh, or commercial broadcasting, you know, as well. But um what what I f- saw that was so unique that I tried to theorize a bit in the book through this concept of Chicana radio praxis was um, that echoed my own experience in radio was that our personal um, lived experiences influence, you know, how we created radio, what were the stories that were of interest. Uh, But not just that, how do we create opportunities for other folks to learn um, to to produce media, right? So that it's not just, um, you know, Mexican American women or Latinas as the focus of the, the uh, the content, but as the content makers themselves. So um, I really saw that at KDNA, um, 
DNA in particular, they were very aware of that. They were, they wanted to create an environment where they, you know, taught each other to edit and produce that there weren't, um, they weren't replicating, um, you know, sexist, uh, patriarchal, you know, songs weren't aired on the radio. They were very diligent about going through, you know, the records that came in to edit, you know, uh, edit out any songs that they deemed, you know, um, degrading to women or to other, you know, members of, of the community. And so those practices, I, you know, I, I attribute to, um, you know, both the, the work that they were doing already in the community, but the inclusion, the active inclusion of, you know, women in the, um, in the, the organizing structure of the radio station as producers, as they were the, you know, the station manager was a woman, the um, music director was a woman. So I feel that a lot of these, um, the inclusion of women really made it so that the, the radio station reflected that. And you talk about uh, them at KDNA, then establishing right off the bat, anti uh, sexism policies for the station. Um, and <clears throat> who were the uh, original founders of KDNA? You, you do a great job of profiling many of the particular individuals. Um, but, you know, some of their stories are, are remarkable. I mean, were they farm workers themselves? And uh, who were who were the, the kind of founders if there were uh, a few. Yeah. So, um, th- there were a couple of people that, you know, that started the station that had this idea. Um, at first there was a, you know, a group organizing, as I said, uh, with, you know, long farm worker rights, um, Chicano rights. Um, and it was, um, two producers from Michigan, Julio Cesar Guerrero and Daniel Roble. They were, um, doing, uh, youth workshops uh, with farm worker youth um, to produce radio out in Michigan. And they decided, you know, to bring the project out to Washington um, and linked up with some of the activists there who included Ricardo Garcia, who was, um, he was the executive director for an organization called Northwest Rural Opportunities that worked, you know, as a, uh, as a resource for the community. And um, Rosa Ramon, who was, um, as I mentioned, the only woman co-founder and the person that I first interviewed back in 2012 about the station. So she was the station manager and um, all of them were worked together to file the application to the FCC. They collaborated with a judge called, um, his name was um, Ernest Nash. He was a retired FCC judge uh, who was able to walk them through the application and help them. And so about a group of five five people um, were the ones that you know did a lot of the legwork to you know do the paperwork. Um, they ended up uh, creating a nonprofit organization, um, and so all of that work um, happened between 1975 and 1979, which is when the station finally went on air. Um, it was an effort that first they thought would start in they would they would have in Seattle, so they started um, broadcasting off of a a uh, subcarrier signal uh, from another community radio station called Crab K R A B F M, which was Seattle's first community radio station that was modeled off after you know the Pacifica network after the um, this idea of listener sponsored radio, right? Um, 
And so they first started in Seattle. They needed special receivers that, you know, um, required a special signal. Um, So that ended up being, you know, not very cost effective and didn't reach the audience they wanted, which was the, you know, Spanish speaking farm worker community. And so they decided to move the project to Granger, which is in, in Eastern Washington. Um, and were able to really get the station off the ground there, um, you know, by, by creating everything from the radio tower, uh, to the transmitter, you know, shack and signal, uh, signal. Um, and so all of that was, you know, community led effort. It uh, was, you know, no longer just five people, but really required the help of, you know, volunteers and and people in the community that believed in the project. Because for a long time, you know, they were having issues or, um, you know, the antenna not working correctly. And so um, they were afraid that, you know, for a while there, they they wouldn't be able to go on air. But finally, in December of 1979, uh, they they went on air and really changed the landscape of the Yakima Valley. You mentioned Granger. Uh, for those of us not familiar with, not so familiar with the region, um, that's one of a few kind of towns uh, of significant size in the valley. Or, correct. Or- yes, correct. So there's the the Yakima Valley is comprised of you know small small towns, uh, Granger, Sunnyside, Mapton. These are all you know small rural towns that. Um, are very much connected, though, because of all of the farm farm labor in the region. But um, these are all places where you would you find you know uh, Spanish speaking farm workers, and and that's exactly the um, the gap that the founders of KDNA saw that there wasn't any other media that was reaching out to the community. They were um, you know there wasn't Spanish print media, TV, as I mentioned earlier. And so they really saw radio as a way to connect all these small rural towns. And farm workers, while in the field, after the development and the proliferation of uh, handheld radio technology, which you talk about, what, in the (laughs) kind of beginning in the 50s into the 60s, those became, became widespread? Yes, and uh, so um, they could, you know, communicate uh, while they're working. They could, they could have on Radio Cadena. No? Exactly. And that was one of the things that was, you know, so great about, about this technology was that they were able to listen to the radio out in the fields. Uh, and one of the, you know, topics that Cadena did cover was, you know, um, farm worker rights, but also farm worker health, you know, which was so important for uh, folks to learn about, you know, pesticides in the fields, to learn about, you know, that they, you know, had legal, you know, rights as workers, um, you know, that they were um, deserved. And, and it was their right to ask for, you know, bathroom breaks and um, extended breaks and, you know, um easily accessible bathrooms and a lot of the homes that they lived in were, you know, not the best conditions. So these were things that the radio, um, that Radio Cadena was able to um, really announce on air and, and, and have folks learn more about um, what different programs they had, you know, for themselves and for their children, both health programs and education programs. Um, and oftentimes a lot of the growers were not very happy with some of the content on, on Radio Cadena, but, you know, KDNA never didn't aired anything that was, you know, um, you know, 
not supposed to air, right? right. <laughs> so they were basically just speaking of people's rights and some folks. Educational were, programming, essentially. Right, right. exactly. So, um, but, the, you know, they, they did. They really did. Um, well, how did the growers become aware of what was <laughs> being said? Though? I, I guess I guess some of them, I guess some of them. Uh, had some Spanish language capacities too. Right? I'm sure they did. And I'm sure, you know, workers begin asking questions or, you know, begin asking for better conditions or better pay. Um, what they were also seeing is that people weren't leaving. People were creating home in the Pacific Northwest that the growers expected farm workers to, again, as I said, they would throw parties for them. They would, you know, say like, thank you after the, the harvesting season was over, you know, thanks for your help. And, you know, they'd throw a party and then be like, okay, go on your way. Right. And uh, a lot of people were, you know, with children and, you know, wanting to have a more consistent lifestyle and, you know, education for their kids. They really were, um, you know, cementing themselves in, in the region and not going, you know, home. They were creating home there. And with something like the radio station, they were able to, again, identify um, the, the radio station advertised local businesses and restaurants. And and so it, it really became a place where folks could go to and, and build community. And then uh, KDNA intervened in a particularly helpful way on, on uh, the morning of May 18th, 1980. Um, as you start the introduction to the book with uh, this uh, remarkable story about the eruption of Mount St. Helens and their uh, advising uh, people in the fields and elsewhere. Could you say something about that? Right. Yeah. So this happened right if about, you know, five, six months after the station first went on air. So go, KDNA goes on air on the 91.9 FM signal on um, December 19th, 1979. And uh, a few months later, Mount St. Helens erupts, um, which is about, you know, a couple uh, miles east of, of, or the, uh, west of, of the Yakima Valley. So, uh, you know, there was no other way for farm workers to know what is that smoke, what is the debris falling, you know, from the sky without KDNA that was able to go on air immediately after it erupted and, and you know, let people know that, you know, the the volcano has erupted. So go go inside your homes and, and, and listen to KDNA for further, you know, for further news. But had that, you know, had that station not been on air at that time, you know, it, it's a it leads you to wonder what would have happened, you know, to the farm workers that were out in the fields working um, at the time. It was, you know, about eight, eight in the morning, eight fifty three, I think, or something like that. Uh, so they were definitely out working. So um, that the fact that KDNA could go on air, be, you know, an emergency response, um, you know, um, hub for the farm workers, it was really key. And in that case, a real uh, lifeline, I think, as you characterize it at some point in the book but um you know community spanish language community radio for spanish speakers especially in a rural uh area um you know as opposed to some cities that may have uh more kind of outreach uh services but monica one thing that strikes me in this book um as an oral historian or somebody that just does a lot of interviews in the process of research is, is all the really rich uh, oral narratives that you have included here that uh, really 
um, are key to the to the research and reconstructing this history, both both interviews that you did and then um, oral narratives that you just take from uh, existing sources too. But I wonder if you could just say a little bit about why, uh, in the case of this history, and maybe more broadly, uh, those oral histories are so important. To- right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's probably one of the very few ways that we could do this work, right, is that talking to the people that were involved in both its inception, but um, that's something that I wasn't able to do in the book, but it would have been great, you know, to talk to, you know, audience members at the time. Um, but it, it really is the only way to capture a lot of the nuance of the history, because these are not stories that, you know, um, I could go walk into an archive and, you know, look up the section of the history of Spanish language or community radio, uh, or the history of Chicano radio. Um, this is an area that isn't, um, as well documented as we would hope. Um, it's a, it's a history that I think gets, um, sort of buried for various reasons. I think one of them being that, um, oftentimes we don't think of, um, with media, we don't think of Latinas and Latinos as producers as much as, um, sort of, you know, we think of oftentimes the representation of Latino communities that is, you know, sadly still very negative and, and, and perpetuate stereotypes. Uh, when we think of media, we don't really, uh, you know, picture women and Mexican-American women in particular as producers of, of, of media content, especially, you know, historically. And so um, there isn't any, you know, a lot of radio programming archive. There aren't, um, as I said, uh, a lot of resources for, you know, historians or for folks that are interested in, um, you know, histories of public broadcasting that focus on Latinos. So uh, for me, it was a way to not just, um, you know, get to know and honor the people that started the station, but really a way of capturing the history now that, you know, now that we those people are still around and um, are still able to, you know, share with us what they uh, experienced and what they, you know, did the work that they did to um, make this happen. Because if we don't have those, you know, oral histories, those interviews, um, then there's very, you know, there's less chance that we'll get, you know, um, any more details outside of, you know, um, these interviews. So it, to me, it's important, but it's also a way to combat, um, you know, the erasure of Latinos in the Pacific Northwest. It, It was really important for me to learn about this, um, this particular history, because, um, I think oftentimes, um, Latinos in the U S are, um, you know, we're cemented in certain regions and certain time periods, but um, the story of Radio Cadena, you know, really just goes to show how our communities, you know, are, are dispersed across the U.S., uh, but also that we have really, you know, deep, rich histories in, in a lot of regions across the country that I often wonder, you know, what other radio stations or what other forms of community cultural production are out there that we have yet to learn about uh, because, you know, official archives don't, you know, hold that information for us. You mentioned the lack of uh, archival sources for such research. You may, you and others may be uh, changing that dynamic to some extent because uh, along with this uh, book that comes out of, of your project, uh, there's also a, an, an archival element, right? Um, 
though I'm sort of uh, blanking on exactly the name of the project. And but could you talk about the the uh, archival work you're doing with yeah, this? Yeah. So um, I've been as you know working on since I've been able to collect some materials, some you know radio programs and other newspaper and magazines, and um, I've I've done a lot of the video interviews. So. As I've, you know, worked on this book, I've also thought of, because of my training, you know, uh, being a, a feminist scholar and wanting to be more, um, you know, open with with our work, right? Oftentimes academics, you know, we uh, want to kind of keep things for ourselves or we find things and we want to, you know, because sometimes that's, that's the way the academia operates. But um, I really wanted to... Um, work on this project as a way to um, democratize a bit, you know, the archival process and and have more uh, of a public aspect to this work. Because at the end of the day, you know, when I'm writing about community radio, they also were about sharing and about, um, you know, creating resources and knowledge. And um, it wasn't about um, locking things up, right? It was about free, free resources and, uh, or low cost resources, right, for the community. So in that spirit, I feel that for me, it's important to create a digital resource, especially given the the technology that we have. Um, you know, I'm able to scan a lot of the images that was that we were able to find, um, and you know, pretty easily uh, upload them up to a website. You know, that uh, I'm using WordPress. I'm using a free you know free tools as much as possible in the similar spirit that that the community radio producers you know created radio where they use secondhand equipment or they use whatever resources they had at their disposal to create this amazing, you know, community-based radio programming. In the same way, I want to, you know, um, not, you know, hoard or uh, or hide away um, these wonderful interviews and, and other, um, you know, radio station um, ephemera that I was able to digitize. So um, right now the, the website is Feminista Frequencies, so just like the book, um, and it's still being, um, I'm still working on it, uh, but you can see some of the images that are both in the book, but um, images that didn't make the book. There's a few videos, um, but eventually, you know, I want to um, broaden this project to, you know, allow for other radio stations because they're out there. Um, you know, I, I know that there's uh, other stations that developed at the same time as KDNA did and, you know, that deserve that their own, you know, preservation of that history. So um, I'm hoping that, you know, the project can get some, you know, more funding, um, hopefully get some nice um, grant funding so that I'm able to, you know, create a team to um, really make this a, a robust resource of community broadcasting. Going back a little bit, Monica, to... Um some of the uh, kind of meat of the book here. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned that in the 1960s, uh, there was a kind of wave of support for the establishment of uh, community radio in different places in the country. And the so-called War on Poverty programs or Great Society programs um influenced uh, some aspects of this early history. Could you talk about how Chicanas and Chicanos seized on, capitalized on 
those great society programs in this case. Right. So there were, um, you know, in, in efforts to address and, um, you know, try to uh, remedy some of the social ills happening. Um, a lot of programs were started that were, you know, job training programs and uh a lot of organizations, especially Chicano organizations, took advantage of these grants and were able to create um, job training uh, programs. So um, in the case of, of KDNA, um, because they were, you know, working with other community-based organizations like Northwest Rural Opportunities, um, so they were a social service organization helping farm workers. Uh, one of the things they did was um, help them find jobs, especially once the um you know, the harvest season, the growing season was over, uh, f- folks needed, you know, other work. And so um, what they did was they created a, a radio um, training program so that folks were able to train in public broadcasting and radio broadcasting, um, you know, through these these grant programs um, that then would supplement some of that, you know, that income or that the, the salaries for the um for the radio producer. So that was a really, you know, innovative way that the, um, that KDNA's founders, um, were able to leverage some of that, you know, those, those grant programs, um, you know, funding programs to train farm workers to produce radio. So, um, I think because of the ways in which, you know, like social movement activism works, there's a lot of overlap and parallel. So again, they were able to apply a lot of the programming, um, you know, meant to help farm workers in really unique ways. In chapter two, page 61 of the book, um, I'm going to read the, the opening sentence here. Um, Chicanas who stepped up to the microphone for the first time were not only hearing their own voices audibly broadcasted over public airwaves, they were also announcing the arrival of a sonically distinct Chicana public sphere. Uh, could you just elaborate on that a little bit? It, 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 this starts off the uh, chapter called uh, Brotando del Silencio, Emerging from Silence. Uh, and it's really... Um, the heart of where you lay out this Chicana radio praxis. Right. I think one of the, you know, really for me as someone that was really interested in thinking about gender and thinking about women's activism in particular, uh, one key piece of evidence that I was able to find or that, you know, we were able to uncover um, Rosa, my collaborator, again, she was the um, one of the co-founders. Uh, she was able to find a uh, recording that they had done for a women's conference in the 80s where four of the women producers talked about their experiences on the radio. And um I was able to finally hear their voices, um, you know, them talking about their experiences, what it meant to learn how to produce, how um, uh, one of them, you know, spoke to the importance of having her young daughter, her five-year-old daughter, hear her on the radio. And that just really made me, you know, think about how unique it it was at the time to hear a Latina voice over the airwaves, to hear the texture, to hear their, you know, the accent or, you know, to hear how they conveyed certain, you know, 
information or news or music, um, it was impactful for me because it made me really think about, you know, the power of content creation, the power of creating our own media and what that does to our personal agency. So, um, and I think that I really reflected on that because I had a background in radio, because I had this experience of finding my own personal agency through radio production where, you know, before being part of this group, I really wasn't as outspoken or, you know, I was more shy. And so this experience really made me come out of my shell and, and um, gave me an, a creative outlet that I didn't realize I really needed and enjoyed. And so for me to then hear that, you know, 40 years ago or 30 years ago, women were having the same, you know, or similar experience, um, it really, you know, resonated with me and really, I think, showed how the medium of radio, how, you know, the quality of learning the production, the active participation, right? Not just the the consumption, the listening to the radio, but the actual creation of it um, was something that just travels across time and space. Space, that it's not contained by, you know, the 60s or the 70s, but that, that this is something that we continue to see and hear. And what I, you know, end the book with is that it, it continues with podcasting and with, you know, Latinas really taking to this medium and, again, creating their own content and, and broadcasting it to, you know, um, their, their communities. And so uh, I, I really wanted to you know, understand at a deeper level what it meant for women, um, particularly Chicana women, to be able to, um, you know, produce their own media. And then that is, again, how I theorize this idea of Chicana radio praxis. And then what did a, uh, a kind of normal day of programming at uh, KDNA in the early 80s say what might it have consisted of uh for example what were a couple of the the programs or the kinds of things that that you would have heard so usually the mornings um, would start off with music. Um, they had, you know, musical programming, rancheras, high energy, you know, um, dance music to get people, you know, off, off to a good start. Then they would have a, the children's program, uh, El Jardín de los Niños or kindergarten, which, you know, uh, was uh, they have like characters and different um you know, songs and music for kids. And then the call-in aspect where children were able to call in. Um, they would have um, job opportunities on there where they would announce, you know, different, um, you know, employment opportunities. Uh, they had um, a program where it was a oral history interview program, actually, uh, where they interviewed somebody's grandfather who was, you know, um, alive during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, then they would air some of the um NPR affiliate content or their uh, their uh, other fellow Chicano community radio stations that they would share some programming. Uh, so they would air a radio program that was produced out of KPBS for NPR called Enfoque Nacional, which is a national Spanish news program. Um, that was, again, um, aired on NPR through KPBS in San Diego. So they aired that. They, um, again, would have mu different musical breaks. Uh, on Sundays, they would have um, church or they would have a priest 
um, you know, on air in the mornings. Um, as I mentioned, they had the women's program twice a week, um, I think on like a Tuesday and a Saturday. Uh, and so it was a variety, a variety of musical selection and a variety of cultural programming content. At one point, they even aired um, a Spanish version of Star Wars. So uh, there's a cool advertising in the in the radio program guide that um, I've been able to digitize where you see sort of like a mock-up drawing of somebody in space. And um, I, it took me a while to figure out what is this advertising? And it was advertising, a, there was a Spanish, I guess, reading of Star Wars. So... <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if that was folks at KDNA that created that or if that was circulating. I know. Nas- I wish I could find more, but you know, hopefully <laughs> maybe somebody will one day. But yeah, so very eccentric, very, um, you know, typical of a community station where you have, you know, a variety of different types of music and programs, but all with the goal of, of engaging, you know, uh, the commu- the local community. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what you go into detail on in chapter three, and you alluded to a little bit earlier, uh, a kind of do-it-yourself community radio programming aesthetics, as you call it, Radio Rasquache. Right. What is Rasquache in this uh, context. Right. So rascuache is a term, um, a Spanish term that's usually, you know, used to describe something that's kind of a hodgepodge or, um, uh, you know, not the best quality, but you kind of like make do with whatever it is that's on hand. So a very DIY uh, way of, of, of doing things. And that's, you know, something that I really um, thought resonated both with not just the the radio station, you know, KDNA in the sixties and seventies, but with us, with my experience at KD at, at KPFK, um, you know, we kind of we were all volunteers, so we weren't paid staff. Um, so we kind of did what you know we could with the resources at hand. So this you're talking idea- about you're- you're talking about Soul Rebel Radio, right? Yes, I'm talking about Soul Rebel Radio. So uh, this idea of Rasquache that, you know, you don't have, you know, the latest and greatest recording technologies. You don't have, you know, the, the newest computers or recording devices. Um, but that doesn't stop you from creating something beautiful or magical or, you know, impactful. It, it actually... Um, you know, is a driving force sometimes uh, for creating this type of content. Now, I don't want to say that, you know, the best things are created, you know, in poverty conditions. That's not, you know, that's not it. But it's more of, you know, when we don't have access to, you know, all all the resources in the world, uh, we use the resources at hand to uh, do, you know, do something really great. And I think that that spirit of of cultivating um, this programming aesthetic, right, that uh, included references to, you know, the civil rights movement, both, you know, KDNA did that, and then we did that, where we were, you know, thinking about the 60s and 70s, you know, uh, at the time, uh, we were reflecting on those moments and calling on that um, spirit of, you know, um, access to our rights and um, demanding, you know, equal opportunity is something that was infused in how we created the the radio um, 
programming. So I, I feel that that's a way of thinking about how do we uh, infuse um, media production with our own experiences, but also with um, these cultural, you know, um, references and these, you know, uh, musical references or, you know, artistic um creations uh, a lot of the hand drawn you know program guides that i was able to to look at from the 70s i you know I, I saw a lot of the similar you know qualities and aesthetic that we use in our flyers for solarable radio so um, it was a way for me to think about well what is it about this production process that we're calling on similar cultural references or even you know 40 50 years later we're still you know leaning on some of the same um, you know, references or cultural touchstones that are so important um, to our communities. And so that was a way of capturing that. You mentioned a couple of maybe additions. I don't know if, if uh, uh, the founders and producers and broadcasters at KDNA were thinking about these uh, in the 70s, maybe to some extent, but you mentioned like uh, influences of Malcolm X, Che Guevara, on you all at uh, Soul Rebel Radio a little bit later, so so there are also some departures too, right? Or right, yeah, there, there's definitely some departures and some, you know, uh, but at the time, you know. Um, KDNA was referencing like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and um, uh, Emiliano Zapata. So there's like an image of Zapata in one of the program guides. And, you know, I just remember in our, you know, radio production in the 2000s, that was still a cultural touchstone for us. We were still talking about Emiliano Zapata and, you know, the Mexican Revolution. And and so these, these moments that we're able to, um, you know, share, but then also you know, we were able to incorporate obviously more contemporary issues in our programming. But again, with similar, with similar, you know, um, approaches to, to the programming. Um, Monica, uh, what does this um, history of Chicana radio praxis uh, in community media there in the Yakima Valley, what does this add to um, histories of A, the Chicano movement, and then uh, B, the second wave of, of uh, women's activism. You talk about both of those things in the book, but I wonder if you could go into it a little bit here. What does this add to what we uh, already have in terms of scholarly production and what we know about the Chicano movement and second wave uh, women's activism? Yeah, for the for the Chicano movement in particular, it really adds this uh, layer of radio activism that really hasn't been considered as deeply as it should be. I think that um, as you know, visual folks, we we um, you know are quick to think about you know the impact of you know visual arts and and television and film. But sometimes the the oral component gets, you know, a little bit lost in there. We're not as radio has such a unique place in our society, even still to this day. I don't think we realize just how much of a you know, resource it continues to be. I think a lot of folks think radio sometimes is dead or isn't as important, but um, we don't realize that it, it, it has been and continues to be, you know, a really vital everyday um, resource for 
you know, communities, especially Spanish speaking communities. Um, and that's one of the key components of this history that gets illuminated that, again, there are Spanish speaking Latinx, Latina, Latino, Chicana, Chicano, uh, Mexican American communities in the Pacific Northwest. And that is still something that to this day, really, you know, most people don't consider the Pacific Northwest an area of rich Chicano history. But um, this is one example of that it is, that it very much deserves um, attention and and more recognition in that um, line of history. Um, But it also, I I think, again, correlates to how we view women and women's activism. Um, Radio isn't considered, um, again, in in a lot of the forms of how we think about activism. Um, And so I think that radio offers us a unique opportunity to think about how women in particular were able to, you know, use the airwaves to discuss things, you know, like, you know, violence against women, incest, um, share resources, you know, um, talk about mothering and parenting and their children. And I think that it is a, you know, a really unique resource where, you know, we're able to open up in ways that, you know, sometimes visual media doesn't, you know, really allow for. And so um, I really wanted to show how a particular group of, you know, of folks and, and especially Chicanas were able to use this resource of radio for really unique and innovative purposes that they often don't get credit for. And that, um, especially now that we talk a lot about representation and, and, and production, um, radio is a great place to start thinking about when and how have Chicanas, Mexican-American women been able to create their own content and be their own producers and their own media makers? And what does that sound like? Um, I think that that's what um, I try to show in this book. One example of how um, that's a possibility through radio programming that, again, is able to intersect all of these different areas of activism and cultural production. Where do we go, uh, or where do you go to find that um, praxis these days on the um, the media and the organizing landscape? You know, does anything come to mind? I mean, I'm not necessarily trying to get you to lift up particular examples, but I'm I'm just wondering: uh, is is there are there comparable you know projects or 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 that praxis that you see yeah i mean i think the again the the podcasting area um you know especially in the last probably five years ten years i think has really shown us how vital audio storytelling is and especially for um latinas again um the first thing that comes to mind is recently the anything for selena podcast um that was produced um and distributed by uh, uh, the Futuro Media Group, I believe. Um, so that's uh, Maria Hinojosa and Latino USA, NPR's, um, you know, lat- only Latino show for a really long time. Um, they just produced this radio about Selena, who is, you know, continues to be a really important cultural, you know, icon for, for all of us. But um, it was done bilingually. Um, it, you know, received really, you know, great reviews, um, was highly regarded. Um, and I think, again, it just shows that 
our our content, Latina focused content is, you know, of interest to a general audience. I think oftentimes we think of, you know, ethnic media or, you know, women's media as niche or as for a particular audience. We don't see it as a, you know, a general story. And I, and I think more mainstream podcasts have the power to be able to show compelling, you know, narratives about Latinos that everyone can be interested in. I think that, um, Selena, that, that podcast was just one example of how, you know, um, specific content for, for Latinos does have a general, you know, interest for everyone, I hope. And is, could you say anything about the, we're, we're almost, uh, out of time here and I appreciate all your time today, but could you say something about the women who rock collective? Yes. Um, yes. So women who rock, uh, was, is, um, a project that's based out of the university of Washington. Um, and it is a group of scholars and activists that, uh, have been working to collect the, um, oral histories of, folks, um, women and other folks, um, that have worked in the music and social justice scenes, um, in the Pacific Northwest, really, you know, everywhere. And so, um, it was a project that I worked on, um, as a graduate student in the university of Washington. Um, uh, and so one of the components of that project was an oral history project where we would, um, interview and record, um, uh, interviews with different, um, you know, folks in the, in the area. And so that was when I first met Rosa Ramon, um, Kate, the KDNA, uh, founder. She, um, the, she was one of the people that I interviewed early on for that project. And that's kind of spurred, um, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the, the project, but, um, it's a really wonderful, um, project. It's a, also has a digital, uh, oral history archive. You can look up, uh, women who rock community.org, um, where we have, you know, the interviews, um, a yearly conference that hasn't happened in the past few years, given our circumstances, but um, it really was a wonderful group of, of grad students and scholars and activists where um, we were really trying to debunk the, the sort of white man uh, rocker boy myth of the history of, of rock and hip hop, especially in the, in the Pacific Northwest. That's very, you know, cemented um, in a, in a particular imaginary about, you know, rock and grunge, et cetera. But um, again, just showing that, um, you know, a, a lot of these musical movements, uh, cultural movements, radio movements, um, they require the the involvement and participation of, of all people. And that is usually a diverse, you know, group of people that get together to do something. So um, I'm really, you know, happy. I, I participated in that project and that led me to this, uh, you know, wonderful story of KDNA. Absolutely. Well, Monica de la Torre, we appreciate your time today. Folks, the book is Feminista Frequencies, Community Building Through Radio in the Yakima Valley, just out with the University of Washington Press 2022. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Latin American Studies.